1: and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Today's uh, podcast is with Jen Lim, who is the co-founder and CEO of Delivering Happiness. And you probably know them uh, from their association with Zappos um, and her partner, the late Tony Um, Shea. Her new book is called Beyond Happiness, How Authentic Leaders Prioritize Purpose and People for Growth and Impact. It's a pretty powerful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Mm I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent Today was just another better left unsaid Days can be counted by the time to rent tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next the court of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch the tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops jen Lim, welcome to the show
0: thank you so much for having me Honor to be here
1: oh it's great to have you here I, i love this book and um it is a book it's a business book, but it's more than that. And it's born of loss. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's important to address because it really informs, quite frankly, what I think is a very positive pro-social outlook, but coming out of a lot of pain. And that's when you lost your friend, Tony Shea.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you saw that because I was, it was written, it was, I mean, it was bought as a business book. It was supposed to be for the publisher and then 2020 happened and then all the sequence of events for everyone in the world, you know, and then everyone had a sense of loss and grief. um, And I just tried to process and capture it all. So thank you for, for pointing that out.
1: Uh, And you say in the book, quote, Tony's death with the heavy media storm and cynical at times heartless questions was testing all the lessons I'd learned about highs, lows, happiness, and beyond. Um, I mean, did you find yourself going through the stages? I mean, I know for me, the the, the grief journey, you want to be linear, and it just isn't. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's quite frankly, never over. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's that. It seems to me that's what you experienced as well.
0: Exactly. Um, because, you know, the whole time heals all wounds things is like kind of bull crap to me yeah. <laughs> because like I lost my dad 18 years ago he was way too young mm-hmm. I was in my late 20s and then of course with um Tony's passing it just brought it back to a different level of like you know now that we're a bit more mature and more uh, self-aware and who we are and what we are doing in life but um but yeah I mean it just came full circle but in such a Deeper way that I needed to really get into that grief process that I hadn't before, especially because I'm, you know, known for happiness. So, I (laughs) I I had to um, call it upon myself and question, like, you know, if am I still a believer of all these things, Um, and with all that we, as a global society, experienced. During the last 18 plus months now, then I put that to the test and did not know that Tony was going to pass. And I came through it and still processing, of course, but and launching this book and really wanting to share that it is the cliche is true, that unless we really understand our lows and actually Mm -hmm. accept them and embrace them and not put you know, sweep them under the rug, we won't we like we really won't understand our highs.
1: Uh, the quote that keeps coming back to me that my therapist, therapist first said to me and then someone else said to me is a Ram Dass quote that we're all just walking each other home. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. I find that to be lovely it, it, and then a bit depressing when you move from the personal to uh, the sort of the world events, because uh, you write in the book, quote, historically, sharing a common enemy is one of the best ways to bring people together. Before 2020, I would have considered global pandemic to be a pretty safe bet to be that enemy. Instead, it just revealed how fractured we were. So this is just, this is this bizarre place where we find ourselves that we can't ignore. Business people can't ignore because it's a human problem and humans work in business.
0: Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. I mean, it just, uh, in that sense of everything got flattened um, between, you know, businesses of CEOs, board members to the frontliners of what really not just happiness means, but what humanity means. And, and this was a global, as we all know, like the reset on humanity was hit on the global scale. So what better time than now uh, to look on the, you know, the silver lining of it all to reflect in that. And I think that's been one of the most promising thing that people and you know, people that are leading companies can see that and we need more of that humanity at work.
1: Uh, I was thrilled that you had this little data point in this book because I interviewed uh, Ray Wang for the uh, podcast and he had also this, this data point in his book, but the audio was so bad, we couldn't air it. Um, You talk about that. It took 75 years for the telephone to reach 50 million people in the world. And it only took 19 days to reach the same number of people in 2016 through Pokemon Go. (laughs) So that is ridiculous, (laughs) terrifying, and impressive all at the same time.
0: (laughs) A thousand percent agreed. I think, like, I I brought that one data point up because it's just, like, that's just one of so many exponential yeah. things that are happening yeah. that we don't we're not even aware of unless and sometimes you know in, until we sit with it and and understand the rate of exponential change is outpassing our ability as humans to adapt, so therefore um that's why I think this like we're really digging deep into being into ourselves and understanding that
1: uh, and you write about the fact that we're living in this adaptive age. Um, and I really love this sort of very simple thing you, you say in the book, which is, quote, control and change what we can, embrace and adapt to what we can't. It's simple, it's hard, uh, but I, I think in its simplicity, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know we can't, we can't control certain things, but as human beings, we do have the ability to control how we perceive it. And in that, that's where problem solving, I think, starts.
0: Yeah, totally. Like, that's one of the biggest things I've been learning even before the pandemic. And I, you know, I've been doing this delivering happiness stuff <laughs> for 11 years now. And even before that at, at Zappos, but like, we were always based on scientific happiness and we've seen it evolve over the years. But then over the, the more recent years, there's such a large basis of the biggest change that, that can happen is within our own sense of control. And when I say control, we can, the biggest things that we can control is like who we are, like purpose, values. And I know I talk about this book or in that in the book quite a bit, but it really becomes that pillar that will never, like no matter what sandstorm is out there, no matter what earthquake goes on, we are, if we ground ourselves in that, then that will never change. And I, I've seen that that's the biggest change and shift that just got amplified, you know, since 2020.
1: Which is the reason we need to double down on our human beings. I, I, I was saying this to, uh, we have a new sort of head of um, HR, and I was saying to her, I, I do a lot of talks for HR organizations. I, I think that in the future, that's going to be the most powerful uh, uh, department in any organization because they're going to be about instilling peak performance. And what we know about that is mm-hmm. that the incentives are, are wrong in business. And, and the, this goes back to the educational system that's not set up based on contemporary science. You know, it's still factory systems. And a lot of our workplaces mm-hmm. are like that. And, and, but people, people are more evolved. And, um, and you say a really lovely thing in here about that companies are basically, basically people making choices. It's so much easier to think that you don't have any control when you think of the monolith. But the monolith is just a bunch of us.
0: hmm Totally, yeah, and I love that you bring it up, be- bring that up because there is, there's the sense of autonomy that we, in the end of the day, have our sense of control of what we, the decisions we make. But there's also been a very promising future because we've been hearing about like the future work, yada yada yada, all the for so long. Future mm-hmm. work just got slapped in our face, like because of all that happened, and we're living that future work now. What I feel so promise. Promised and uplifted about, even though we're still in the middle of it, is that there's more and more leaders that are understanding that from a business level that can't be just treated as, like, you know, the so called worker or employee. You got to be treated as human beings. And I've seen it with one of our clients, uh, Starbucks. I've seen it with other examples of people that are companies that are investing and reskilling people to be beyond automation because there are certain things that. You know, AI, AR will never do, at least that we know of now. And, you know, being creative, um, having that emotive feeling and like giving a, a colleague a high five or hello in a meaningful way. So, those things are very promising to me, but it has to be a constant everyday reminder for all of us as leaders in our own life and leaders of companies.
1: Yeah, robots can't improvise and they're not funny. Um, so that's a, another two things that we could check off of that. So let's talk a bit about the greenhouse model, because uh, this is where you sort of dig into. And what I want to do is talk very practically, because I think you do it in the book. When you throw around terms like purpose or values, you're mm-hmm. actually talking about the way they play out in our day-to-day actions. So let's let's start with purpose, um, uh, which you say is the most sustainable form of happiness.
0: Yeah. So that... Basis goes back to scientific happiness, goes back to Aristotle, like back in the day, he said, happiness is the purpose of our existence. And most importantly, happiness is uh, dependent on ourselves. So what we've seen, especially in positive psychology and the latest research in a couple of decades, is that still holds true. And so this is not a new concept by any means, and nor is it rocket science. But what I've seen happen, and especially in the last 10 years, is that when we put that into place and actually make it livable. So, people are actually showing up to work and feel that they're living their own personal purpose that's aligned with their company's purpose and We see it uh, more and more companies like being bold with their claims of what their purposes are like Airbnb even Tesla like you know uh, Patagonia is like a poster child of all this stuff. But the biggest part of that is like when we can actually express our purpose and values in the workplace. And we have leaders, whether it's a team, and even if the CEO doesn't get it, that's fine because we all have control within our own realm of what we want to do. Once we see that alignment of who we are, as we define it for ourselves, and this is like Mm -hmm. totally how we define happiness for ourselves, once we align that foundationally in us, and then therefore align it with that of the company and teams, that's when we see the most positive change happen, especially when we have no idea what's going to happen the next day these
1: days? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, I've been thinking a lot that we're, n- we're not going to solve these problems person by person. And we're not going to solve them company by company. But I think we could solve them team by team. Um, totally. And we, we just had a couple people on about burnout. And the Mayo Clinic, their most recent studies is that the way you treat burnout most effectively is at a team level, not an individual level, That mm-hmm. which surprised me, not when I thought about it uh, a little bit. Um, uh, but then that, the thing I think that's crucially missing inside of a lot of teams is, um, really talking to each other and, and knowing what everyone's going through. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think this idea an idea that's been discussed on this podcast is before a meeting, everyone talk about a thing that's, that's a, that where they're stuck or where they're having a problem or where they have a pain. Um, and then that opens up a whole area of what I think we mean when we say authenticity, which is not like you can you know come in in a clown suit, I mean if you 're into it whatever it depends on your company, but but that at least what you know is that you can come in and be real right
0: exactly yeah that 's the real talk that I think everyone is craving and needing at this time, and I love the fact that you bring up the the team aspect because it 's really why I wanted to break out the book in terms of our frameworks between the me we community because and it taps back into what we can control so the teams that we are working in on a day-to-day basis have we have a greater sense of control what we can do there and i see teams like as a maybe an easier way to think about it knowing that villages and humanity has lasted through time through this concept of villages people have roles they're here to support each other you know If someone's not doing something, someone else will come in and help that other person. I think teams and, uh, you know, laddering up to organizations are modern day villages. Mm -hmm. People are so thirsty and needing social connection. And that's, you know, neuroscientific. That's biological. It's physiological. And so I think that's the greatest sort of short term and midterm, long term impact we can make. By controlling those conditions of what we can do, introducing the concepts of what are our team's values? Like, even if my CEO doesn't give a crap about this, let's develop for ourselves. What's our team's purpose? Making it higher than making more money. When you start doing those things, that's when the village forms and you see people just looking out for each other.
1: Even one layer below that, th- uh, there's some uh, studies I've seen that suggest that uh, our, our teaming uh, evolved as caregivers. Uh, So men and women caring for the children that they and and that those those jobs were were done together until, you know, things changed. And given what's going on in Washington today and these proposals and and just the overwhelming need for our country to start to recognize that without support for caregiving, we are we are lost. Like it is it's it's it is again, it's one of these things that the science tells us these things, but also the reality of two people. We live in a place where the wife and the husband have to work. Mm-hmm. And, and if they've got kids, like it, it can't all fall on, on the woman. And, and, in, in, you know, so I think, and you say in the book too, that um, 10 or 20 years ago, hearing words like vulnerability, Resilience, compassion, and mindfulness, and love at work was a huge rarity. Mm -hmm. I'd add care to that, but because I think they all uh, apply, uh, especially in 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 places of work that want to thrive.
0: Mm -hmm. Totally agree, and thank you for putting another four letter word in there because, (laughs) yeah, it's. I mean, for me, that's where I see the light. You know, like lighted in a tunnel of seeing like that. There is more of an awakening of self awareness of what we need as individuals. And from a leadership perspective, whether C level or board members, like we need to get people, like there are assets. If we actually invest in them, they'll make us more money, we'll lose less Mm -hmm. money kind of thing. That's one of the big points I wanted to make in in tying those things together. Um, And on the caregiver front, I think it's hugely important. And one of the metaphors I try to introduce in a deeper way is that as leaders and caregivers, we all want to help nurture and grow others. So a big point in the book I wanted to make was like, make sure you're nurturing your greenhouse first.
1: Yeah.
0: The whole oxygen mask in the airplane. I know we don't, we haven't heard it in a long time because we're not flying anymore, but you know what I'm saying? Like nurture mm-hmm. your greenhouse as you nurture others because we have the natural tendency to want to do that. And only you know how to nurture your own and being more vulnerable to that within yourself and being more gentle and patient with that conversation. I mean, I don't know if self-love or two, another four four letter words that we don't want to talk mm-hmm. about, but it's so, I mean, I just got off a, a webinar with Peter Diamandis yesterday, like, you know, futurist and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we spent time on self-love because someone asked from his um, community, abundance community, like, how do you do that? So I think the fact that we're talking about these things is a huge step in the right direction.
1: Yep, yeah, That's the first step. Uh,
0: opening up that conversation, Mm -hmm. not feeling pain or not feeling, I'm sorry, not feeling shame in, in doing and saying that, look, I'm tired or I cannot do this. I mean, Simone Biles did it on an international stage. So, and that's her workplace, but we all have our own workplace and our own families in our lives. So it's time that um, let's, let's keep on growing that space. uh, Safe space for that conversation would be awesome.
1: I uh, co-led an interactive uh, keynote workshop today for this global law firm, and we were sort of prepped that they're kind of hard-nosed lawyers, and and so I actually, I set up this whole thing where I was going to prove that, like, like before I got into my improv stuff, I was going (laughs) to prove to them that this had real value and it was based on real facts and real science, and then... The person who was before us was this mindfulness expert doing breathing exercises, and I'm like, oh wait, I'm, I'm like if they're if they're starting with this, I'm going to be fine. Um, <laughs> and, and the guy afterward, that head of the company, was like, oh yeah, no, I mean the, the the breathing, the exhaling is hugely important. I'm like, I know, but people don't talk about. That. I can't believe you are talking about that work. That's fantastic. So yeah, you know, it's, 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 some stuff is starting to evolve. I think.
0: It totally is. And sometimes I I feel the same way. Like, it's crazy town. I don't have to, you know, we don't have to twist anyone's arms anymore to be talking about this. It's actually more embraced. We did. Yeah. Not even that long ago. No, Um, no, I,
1: I, seven, eight years, six years. Yeah.
0: I would say when we launched Delivering Happiness was 2010 and that was like, oh yeah, that's cute. That's novel. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we talk a lot about storytelling on mm-hmm. on this podcast, and I, I find that people mean something different when they say storytelling a lot. So I'm curious to have you break down a little bit when you say in the book, "quote Ultimately, we're made of the stories we live." Tell me what you mean by that.
0: Hmm. First off, thank you for reading the book. You're <laughs> amazing in your <laughs> questions. I'm like, damn, you really dug into it. That's awesome. Um, what I meant by that is that. Unless we actually reflect and call out what we're living on a day-to-day basis, Hmm. and whether it's writing or narrative or, you know, talking to a friend, articulating in a blog, you know, whatever form of expression, if we're not capturing and expressing it in some way, then the stories, I mean, will just go in, in a way that we're not really truly ingesting them, nor are we spreading it in a way that like is expressive of who we are as a, a human being. So that's what I mean by it. It's like, while we live in every day, if we're not reflecting and of course, you know, coming from a positivity positivity standpoint, like showing gratitude yeah. in those stories And also acknowledging the pains uh, that you Mm -hmm. you know kicked off this whole uh, conversation with, then we're not really living it in a way that's embedded within ourselves, number one, from a psyche and physiological standpoint and neuroscientific, but also with the people that we love. I mean, they connect to these things in ways that we don't know because we don't know the pain they're going through or the joy until like, let's be the leaders of that. Let's just call it out with our own stories
1: that's probably been the hardest thing. That was, that was initially the hardest thing. My wife and I lost our daughter to cancer two years Mm -hmm. ago and it was very public. uh, And I work at a comedy theater and so does Ann and my wife. Um, And one of the things that we realized as we sort of dug in on the the grief journey and the sort of the journey back to ourselves in, in whatever regard was so many people shared with us the unbelievable pain that, they're going through in their lives that they had not spoken out loud. Mm-hmm. And I, I have the gift of being, you know, I, I'm an older straight white male with a, with a whole bunch of privilege in my community and you know, public figure. And so when I shared it, people were like, Oh, that's so, so great. But other people aren't allowed to, or don't mm-hmm. think they're allowed to. Mm-hmm. And what I realized too, is that I couldn't, I couldn't embrace the happiness without first embracing all the darkness and, and the grief. And that, that runs through this book. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, that's why I think I served, I, I was so um, moved by it because it, it it is a business book. You have exercises and you have real stuff that you're talking about for people to do on a day-to-day basis. But at the same time, your, your pain, you can see in the pages. Mm-hmm. And, and you can also see you're still not giving up on, on, on the other side too, because we don't have one without the other. That's, that's the tough thing here, right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. I'm so sorry to hear that of what you experienced and your wife. And but what you're bringing up is exactly the you know one of the reasons why it's a business book for sure. I want to make it practical and make sure like companies know you can care about people, be positive, and actually be more profitable profitable in the end. But really, what we're tapping into and what you just shared is that we're tapping into a core of humanity and humanness. And we can talk about happiness all day, but until we can actually feel confident enough to say we can share these, like, I, I just, I really would love for this next quote unquote chapter for, for people to be meet, be more open about sharing the dark side, the depths of pain and grief that we go through and those jagged edges that I talk about that, do as we know, and you've gone through this for the last two years, yeah. can reflect and go and say, Wow, you know, I, I went through that and I can go through something else again and build that resilience. And it's freaking hard as hell. Yeah. But it's just so embedded in, in in part of our lives. And so that's why a big piece of it was just, yeah, it was a, a deep processing of Tony's passing. It was a deep, um, nod to everything i believed in it just like i'm not trying to uh, we shouldn't be working for our, our resume we should be working for a eulogy because we just never know what's going to happen and what mm-hmm. do we want to be known for for within ourselves number one uh, and for the people that we love when that time comes
1: uh we had on the podcast a while ago uh valerie core who wrote a lovely book called see no stranger and mm-hmm. she's a, a Sikh activist and lawyer and filmmaker and it's it's a it, she sort of has this idea around radical love and in terms of she, even people who have hurt her, uh, attempting to try to come around to that. And I really love you say this at the end of the book, you go quote, if I could choose a superpower, it'd be the ability to sit down with everyone in the world until they know I see the light in them. I mean, that's a very, you know, that's a very powerful sentiment that puts a lot of onus on you. Um, but, but also I think what it then reflects is that, you know, that that's going to come back to you.
0: Mm. Hmm. I didn't think about the latter part of the coming back, but I do know that that's what keeps me going.
1: Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Uh, a c- couple more questions before I ask you for your yes. And story um, yeah. you say that the most common fail uh, is this you? Yeah. I think it is. Is it the most common fail factor uh, that you've seen is quote, a lack of cl- clearly defined desired behaviors. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love that because I, f- I feel like, it may seem silly, but like we're working on some of the stuff at Second City right now, where we're sort of rebuilding. And like, we should put down our like the kinds of behavior. I mean, we talk about an improv all the time, but we should talk about it for our business in terms of like not just showing up on time, though that's a big one for me, uh, but also that you know you are respectful and that you listen and that you don't interrupt. It's that it's that clear, right?
0: It is, and it, it seems so basic, but unless it's codified, unless it's written, and unless it's all aligned, and everyone, um, we actually say, just literally sign off on it in a way. Like even new people coming to Second City, new people coming to organizations, mm-hmm. give them this piece of paper. Say you're going to sign off on this, and if you're not living by these behaviors, then uh, this is not going to be a good culture fit. Um, yeah, you know, biggest poster child on the other side of the bad end of Enron, like number one code. I mean, uh, sorry, value for them was. Integrity and their behaviors did not exhibit that <laughs> by any means. Like integrity does not mean squandering billions of dollars from the people that you're serving. So all that, um, but yeah, it's it's that simple. Just going that extra step because we see values of like, oh, communication, oh, responsibility, accountability. But what does that really mean? And then when you actually have us, I mean, what we're doing right now, like organizations and teams like ours, we're signing social contracts with the people that we're a part of. And when we actually, whether literally or, you know, behaviorally sign them um, and, and and actually have people accountable for them. So it's basically like anyone can call each other out, even as like the leader of your team. Someone can call you out and say, you know what? You didn't really Oh yeah. say well, or he, do that. So,
1: yeah. I, you know. Help? You don't you don't write the book. Yes. And without just setting yourself up for a life of hurt when you say no. Uh, and, and that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, and actually in the context of a little bit of humor, it's easier to take. But but none of it is impossible to think that we're all going to sort of behave well 24 seven and we, re- we should rely on each other to keep us in check. And my friend, Kim Scott, who wrote the book, Radical Candor, has a great thing with like, like you can do radical candor with me if I know you love me. And, and that's, and that's fine. That that's the state we should be in um, okay. if we care about each other.
0: Yeah. And that's where the values to behaviors, identify and codified, help it immensely because yeah. you can yeah. have these conversations, but um, unless people are like aware, communicated with and accountable for it, then it's going to be super hard.
1: I also love how you talk about um, D.I.B. in the book. You say, quote, diversity is being asked to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Belonging is being able to dance how you want. And equity is to have a turn to pick the DJ. Um, That's a nice way of sort of saying, like, this is what we're trying to say. This is what we're talking about as our workplaces become well more diverse than black and white well more diverse i mean there's neurodiversity there's uh, there's economic diversity there's all that other stuff that our need to understand the nuances within how different people get to play or have traditionally gotten to play and who's traditionally not been able to play is hugely important for our day-to-day success
0: totally yeah and i i mean i try to do it. different people have different variations of of it i just tried to do like the the friday night version of it because i think people can remember it better mm-hmm. but i think it's just for us as teams and organizations to just identify and be clear of what we mean what do we mean by dni what do we mean by culture you know what do we mean by sustainability which is like a bigger question that was prompted you know 10 15 years ago but i think the more we can be specific about these definitions and where we stand, because everyone's drawing drawing a line in the sand more than ever of like, if it's banned, like the fact that we're not happy with the voting rights in Texas or Georgia, like huge companies like Coca-Cola mm-hmm. and City are like, they're saying, oh, well, we're not going to stand for that. That's pretty crazy. Um, yeah. That didn't yeah. happen just like three years ago. So I think for us as leaders, uh, we should be super clear and if anything, overcommunicative, about where we stand on these things.
1: So we always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes-and story and the parlance of improvisation. When two people are making something out of nothing, they get nowhere by saying no. They actually don't get that far by saying yes. We say you say yes and you're firm and contri- contribute in order to explore and heighten. Um, do you have a yes-and story for us?
0: I do. And this one was a uh... And you brought it up at the very beginning of this, and like I love that you just deep dove into because um, you you've known you and Second City have known Tony from the past. Yep. You were just you know, like, and then that I think that's a beautiful story. So I, I I thought I would share mine and on, on the yes and part of this because um, after he passed, it was COVID. Still, still is. And you know, there's no in-person funeral service for all of you know everything, friends, et cetera, family. And then some friend said, Hey, we're gonna do something different. And we're just gonna do something online and ask everyone to contribute in their own way. Okay. And and it it spanned from Bill Clinton to, you know, some band in Chicago to um some you know amazing artists in Vegas and i was like un- like i was like hell no like I'm not, who am i to contribute to this basically celebration of art and expression for his passing because i just uh, uh, just really just climbed up because i didn't even know what to express at that point yeah. um but i sat with the idea for a bit and um it's actually pen uh, pen and teller uh, pen pen's wife emily she was the one that's just like no pressure just let me know and i sat with it and i was just like you know is this for what is this for and it's for my like something i couldn't even write about at the time i couldn't even express it in any way and i said you know okay i'm gonna say yes um and i had during prior to his passing i, I had bought a uh, electric piano because, you know, we had time mm-hmm. <laughs> and piano used to be a chore because I'm Asian American <laughs> <it was> a, <laughs> it was a requirement in life. Yes. And then I bought a piano because like, I want to enjoy it again. And then at that point I said, yes. And to, you know, I, I heard a song and it just resonated with me and I decided to add some notes to it and play along and I was, like, super nervous, super, like, I don't even know if this is going to work because I'm, I'm I'm not that kind of impromptu kind of person,
1: mm-hmm. especially on the piano. <laughs> yeah.
0: Because I'm classically trained and all that crap, right? And, um, you know, and this went live during the event for Tony. Uh, it was almost a year ago uh, in December for his birthday. And that, uh, I think, I was um it just when you ask that question that's what resonated with me most cuz i was freaked out cuz i didn't know what to how to express but somehow it came out and people were chatting in the you know in the mm-hmm. event and saying i didn't know you know how to play piano did and i was like yeah, i didn't know <laughs> and and just like yeah it was it opened up a different space of feelings and conversation that within me and the people that tony and i knew um so, yeah, that was my yes and moment.
1: Was It It was an instrumental piece?
0: It was, yeah. It's like, um, it was an instrumental piece and it had some, like, it's, it's a little bit electronica style and it had some, like, mm-hmm. recordings of, um you know, like, I think it sounds like from the 50s of some gentleman talking about the meaning of life and all that.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it, words sometimes don't work. And so, you know, um, and sometimes to do it. poetry was always a huge thing for me in, in the last few years. Um, but music still is, is something that, you know, reaches us in, in different ways. I'm going to my first uh, uh, indoor concert tonight.
0: Oh, whoa. Who
1: so is it? It's a group called Jukebox the Ghost. Um, they actually are our intro and exit music on the podcast. Um, they are, um, I like to say, uh, uh, Queen meets ben folds wow so that's, that's uh amazing. yeah ben thornwall who's the lead singer has the range of freddie mercury but they write these catchy little pop numbers that some are, get get very dramatic at times Oh so, dang! yeah so it's it's uh I, i'm excited about that and sort of embrace that uh, i loved your story uh the book is called beyond happiness uh jen Lim, thank you for coming on the podcast
0: thank you so much for having me thank you kelly have fun tonight i will
1: Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elf Garris, with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
0: C'est